Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. As you know, Stoicism has had a big impact on my life, and it's helped me so much through the last 15 years. And it's something I try to share with others sometimes. That's a book recommendation. One of the things we've tried to do over the years is create some physical embodiments of Stoic philosophy, just sort of physical reminders of these ideas. I've got the Marcus Aurelius bust on my desk. My whole office, my, my home even, is sort of reminders of these ideas from the ancient Stoics. Maybe that's something you would want this time of year, or as you're looking to give something to someone in your life, to, to introduce them to the ideas of Stoicism, maybe that's members of your team or your unit, maybe that's a friend you know who's going through something. Anyways, we put together a 2021 gift guide uh, of these things. You can check that out at dailystoic.com slash gift guide. It's 10 awesome gift ideas for the Stoics in your life. The Obstacles the Way Leatherbound book, the Daily Stoic Leatherbound book. We've got action guides. We've got digital courses. There's the Daily Stoic Life membership. We've got signed personalized editions of all my books. Awesome stuff like that for you or for someone in your life. Check that out at dailystoic.com slash gift guide. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another Sunday episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I still remember the very first public talk I ever gave as an author. It was in Brazil in 2012. It was not good. I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. But I really struggled. I was nervous. Uh, I was not confident. Didn't know exactly what I wanted to say. But I've now given literally hundreds, possibly thousands. I think it's more like hundreds. It's, it's definitely more like hundreds. Talks all over the world. I was even supposed to give a talk to Antarctica uh, a few years ago. That fell through. But if I had, that, I think that would put me on every continent or close to, I think that'd be every continent. Anyways, uh, it's been a joy of mine to talk about stoicism to all sorts of different crowds, from profession, from NBA locker rooms to you know military bases to hedge fund boardrooms to to nonprofits, even even uh, even schools. Uh, it's been a joy of mine. I learn a lot, you know, giving the talks, seeing what the audience work. But anyways, here in today's episode, it's a collection of some of my most popular talks, viral moments from talks here or there that have been posted on the internet. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. Uh, I hope you like it. I hope there are some lessons here that will help you apply stoicism in your actual life. And uh, hey, if you want to have me come talk to one of your groups, uh, you can check out my website, ryanholiday.net, and there is the speaking info there. Sadly, over the last two years, most talks have gone virtual, which has been cool, obviously, to keep people safe and not having to travel far away from home. I've definitely appreciated that, but I do miss the rush of being in front of an audience, going to cool places, meeting cool people, and one day that will be back. But for now, this video will have to suffice. Here are some of the best, most viral moments 
from my talks about stoicism for your Sunday morning, afternoon, or wherever you happen to be in the world. It begins with getting up early. On my farm, I like to wake up early. I don't have an alarm clock. My kids are my alarm clock. Uh, They get up insanely early, but I'm up, right? And I never, ever in my life have regretted getting up early. It's been hard in the moment. I get that. Mark Cerullis even talks in meditations. He goes, "Ah, I don't want to get up. And he says, "Uh, why not? This is a conversation with himself. He says, it's so warm here, right? And he says, but is this what you were put on this planet to do, to huddle under the covers and stay warm? Because no, get up and do what you were meant to do, right? So I've never regretted getting up early. I'm always glad after that I did it. The hard part is actually doing it. But I wake up early, and in these moments, before other people, before the obligations, before the interruptions, before the distractions, you are free. It is quiet. You're in control. You don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to do anything. You are still. These mornings are so important. The writer Toni Morrison talks about how, as she was starting as a writer, she had a job in publishing, but she had to find time to actually do her writing. And she couldn't do it in the afternoon when she was fried and tired. She couldn't do it at night after she'd just gone through an exhausting day. She had to get up early. She said she would get up at around 4 a.m. and she, it became this ritual of writing. She needed to be mid-sentence, uh, mid-paragraph, whatever it was, as the sun came up. Watching this transition from darkness to light was the sort of magical, sacred time that she did what she needed to do, right? And so the mornings to me are really important. How you start the day determines how successful the day is going to be. And then if you stack these on top of each other, this is where you're going to be successful, right? So I get up early. I do my work. We'll talk a little bit more about this. But I get up early. I want to own the morning, right? And of course, not everyone's a morning person. As I said, Mark's really not a morning person. That's not the point. If you're having trouble getting up early, if you're not a morning person, I do have a magical secret, a really easy strategy that will help you get up earlier better. And it's actually the title of a book I like to read to my kids, which is Go the Fuck to Sleep. <laughs> this, the secret to waking up early in the morning is going to bed early, right? People go, I can't wake up early. And then it's like, well, what's your evening routine, right? So part of the morning routine is about the evening routine. Wrap up the evening correctly, you start the day properly. Um, I think one of the things I found myself during, doing during the pandemic, you're exhausted, you're tired, you sit down on the couch, you feel like I can't do anything but just sit here and scroll on my phone or sit here and watch Netflix. Um, that is precisely when you have to have the discipline and the willpower to get up, go in your bedroom and go the fuck to sleep, right? When you're tired, the solution is to go to sleep, not to sit there and veg out. So this is philosophy for doers. This is philosophy. Marcus Aurelius is is the most powerful man in the world in his own time. He's the emperor of Rome. And every night he practices Stoic philosophy. He sits down and he writes notes to himself about how to be a better person. And that that work survives to us in 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 a book called Meditations. And I was introduced some meditations. I was about 19 years old. This is right before I dropped out of college. I had to buy it on Amazon. As you can see here, this is, uh, it's not working. Long before the days of Amazon Prime, I had to buy a few other books and and wait several days for it to arrive. And and as I did, um, I tore this book apart. It's what the economist Tyler Cowen would call a quake book. It shakes everything that I think that I know about the world. Now, admittedly, I'm 19 years old, so it's not a whole hell of a lot, but, but it, shakes, it shakes everything to, 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 to the core for me. And, and really, it's a, 
actually, this is a picture of me reading meditations after the next web conference uh, here in 2013. I went to Rome. Um, this is me on, on the Appian Way where Marcus would have come to and from the city. And, and really, it's though it's, it's a single passage in this book that has the most resonance for me. And I'll, I'll show that to you now. He's saying, um, our actions may be impeded, but there can be no impeding our intentions or dispositions because we can accommodate and adapt. The mind adapts and converts to its own purposes, uh, the obstacle to our acting. And then he concludes with the, the maxim that I've tried to live my life by. He says, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And so this is the critical tenet of stoicism, essentially in any and every situation, no matter how bad or seemingly undesirable it is, we have the opportunity to practice a virtue. And, and virtue is a, a bit loaded, so we'll replace that with excellence. Everything that happens to us is a chance to practice excellence. And this is, I think, best illustrated by a quote from, from Andy Grove, who's one of the CEOs of Intel. He's saying, bad companies are destroyed by crisis. Good companies survive them. Great companies are improved by them. The Stoics say over and over again, we don't control what happens to us. We control how we respond. And so we can always respond well. We can always respond with excellence. And we can turn this obstacle into an opportunity. And that's, that's what I ultimately sat down and wrote a book about. That's how I've tried to approach my entrepreneurial ventures. That's how I try to approach my writing as a as a person who wakes up every day and struggles to try to be better at something. It's always harder than you expect. There are always more difficulties than you would want there to be, but we have to learn how to love that. The Stoics have this concept of amor fati, which really just translates to a love of fate. Um, it, it means that instead of fighting the things that happen, instead of resenting the things that happen, we say, ah, this is wonderful. This isn't something I have to put up with. It's something I get to do, right? Marcus Aurelius, it's not unfortunate that this happened. It's fortunate that it happened to me. And, and in fact, Marcus sort of talking about this idea of amor fati says that, you know, what you throw in front of a fire, what you throw on top of a fire becomes fuel for that fire. He says it turns it all into flame and brightness, turns it into heat. It uses it as fuel. That was actually one of my favorite pieces of advice that I got early on as a writer. It said, look, this is going to, this is going to be hard. You're going to screw up. Things are not going to go your way. Life is going to happen to you. But the good news is all that stuff is fuel. It's all material. You can transform it into art. You can transform it into connection. You can transform it into sentences and books and, and whatever it is that you make. But it's not just writing that that's true for it's all fields, right? If, we didn't have our experiences, we wouldn't be able to have the insights, the connections, uh, the ideas that allow us to move forward as creators and leaders. So we need this stuff to happen. And instead of resenting it, instead of running from it, we want to absorb it. We want to want to turn it into flame and brightness. But think about what Marcus is saying. He's saying what you throw on top of a fire is fuel for the fire. It consumes it. Except that's not strictly true, right? If the fire is weak, if the fire is going out, if the embers are growing cold, what you throw on top of the fire can put that fire out. So you have to cultivate this discipline of the will, this commitment, this tribe, this passion, this fire. And that's what allows you to transform the negative things, the adversity into opportunity, into fuel, into advantages, right? That's what we're trying to cultivate. And when you look at the greats of history, that's what they do. They take the worst things that have ever happened to them and they transform it. Malcolm Little goes to jail, a criminal. He emerges from jail as Malcolm X. His time in prison transforms him. 
You could argue the same is true for Nelson Mandela. The same is true for so many people that they, something happens to them, the thing that they never would have wanted to happen, the thing they fought from happening. Um, and then they're able, instead of resenting it, instead of fighting it, instead of waiting for it to be over, they embrace it, they use it, they are transformed by it. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. It's easy to think about other people's ego and we can spot that pretty easy and we know when people's ego is holding them back. But where does your ego hold you back? That's what I want you to think about, right? What is ego preventing you from learning or doing? Where are you making decisions out of ego and how is that causing problems for you? Epictetus, one of the Stoic philosophers, I think he encapsulates where egos really holds us back. It says, it's impossible for you to learn that which you think you already know, right? If you think you're as good as you can be, you're right, because you can't get any better, right? If you think you know everything, you're right, because nobody can teach you anything. And so what we actually find is that the truly great in sports, in business, in life, in literature, what they're actually defined by is this incredible humility, this hunger to learn. They're, they are perpetual students of their craft, right? Ralph Waldo Emerson, every person that you meet is better than you in something, and that's what you want to focus on. There's a great physicist, and he was saying, look, the more I learned about physics, uh, the more I found out that I didn't know. What he, what he said, he said, as your island of knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of ignorance, right? As you get better, as you're in this league a longer amount of time, as you go from playing to coaching or playing to announcing or playing to business, what you're constantly going to be exposed to is all the things that you didn't even know you didn't know, right? And so if you're the kind of person who reacts negatively to that, like if you don't know something, you stick your head in the sand, you get defensive, uh, you get turned off, you're not gonna get any better. But if you're the kind of person that likes being a student, that's perpetually obsessed with learning and getting better, and sees, is, is actually confident enough to say, I don't know, right? I don't know, tell me about it, right? I find myself all the time, people ask me a question about something, and because I don't wanna admit I don't know about it, I pretend that I know, and then they skip over teaching me about that thing. Right? And so if you think you know everything, you don't get any better. And this is where ego tears us apart. Ego also prevents us from collaborating effectively with other people. Pat Riley talks about the disease of me, how it tears teams apart. And, and Cleveland, uh, the city of Cleveland is a great example of this, right? How many championships did LeBron James and Kyrie Irving leave on the table because they couldn't get along, right? Shaq and Kobe, it's the same thing. Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, incapable of getting along with his teammates because he couldn't, th these great people can't understand that not everyone is wired just like them. They can't understand their motivations. They can't understand that different people are, 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 are needing and wanting different things. They live in a world other than your own bubble, right? Kyrie Irving, such a sad example of this, right? He actually didn't want LeBron to come back to Cleveland. Wrap your head around that. 
the best player maybe in the history of your game wants to come home and bring a championship to your city. And he says, no, but now I'm not gonna be the number one guy on the team anymore. What kind of bullshit is that, right? Uh, and, and, and the same thing ends up happening to him when he goes to, to, to Boston. And look, the same thing's gonna happen to him in Brooklyn if he can't figure out how to keep this ego in check. But LeBron's not blameless in this either, right? It doesn't occur to LeBron that this had been Kyrie's team and that Kyrie wasn't, hadn't made as much money as him and that Kyrie wasn't as famous as him and that Kyrie was uh, you know, not getting the same special treatment as LeBron. It totally catches LeBron by surprise when Kyrie demands to be traded, right? And this is ego on both sides. It's teammates living so much in their own bubble, so much in their own head, so ignorant of what other people are going through, what other, what other people want and need, that they that they win they they leave wins on the table. So the disease of me, it, it, it's not just costly and it makes us miserable. It does make us miserable, but it tears teams apart, right? And uh, if you think back even again to the Bible, the story of David and Goliath is ultimately a story of of ego versus confidence, right? Goliath thinks he's invincible. No one can beat me. Look how big I am. No one's beaten me before. Obviously, I'm unbeatable. David. Here's the challenge from Goliath. <clears throat> and he says, I think I can, I think I can do that. But I'm, I'm small. I don't have the advantages that, that, that Goliath has. And this is why he fishes a few stones from the river and he, and, and he attacks Goliath in a surprise. He hits him with a stone with his sling. And then the, this is a famous painting of, of, the, of the story. Uh, he cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword. But engraved here on the hilt is the acronym HOCS, which stands for Humility Kills Pride, right? This is what, uh, this is the timeless cycle in, in, in prize fighting, right? The underdog beats the overconfident champion, becomes the champion, becomes overconfident, becomes egotistical, stops training, stops getting better, and then boom, they're beaten by a younger version of themselves, right? That's the cycle, that's what ego does. So confidence and ego isn't the same thing. Confidence is an understanding of our strength, but also an awareness of where we're weak, of where we need to get better. Ego is this sort of delusional sense that we have no weaknesses and we have unlimited strengths. And so we see in philosophy, a time, there is no ancient philosophical school or religion that says ego's great, we need more ego. Ego is the key to happiness, right? They all say the opposite for a reason. And then that leads us into the last lesson I wanted to talk with you guys about. Um, this is the idea of, a, of an inner scorecard, right? Uh, what, what does, what, how do you measure success? How do you actually determine what success is for you, right? Is it winning? Is it making lots of money? Or is it being the best version of yourself, right? Warren Buffett, super rich, super successful by any external scorecard, right? Any external measure. He's one of the best investors and financiers to ever live, right? And yet he's saying that it's more important to live by an inner scorecard than an outer scorecard. Um, but this is a picture of Nick Saban ecstatically <laughs> raising a, a, a national championship trophy. Um, how is he unhappy in this moment, right? Um, when, I, when I spoke to Alabama a couple years ago, he and I talked about this. He was saying that uh, at the reason he can sometimes look unhappy when they're up by 45 points or when they've just won a championship 
is that he is holding himself and the team to a higher standard than just winning, right? John Wooden said the same thing. He's like, look, uh, when, what matters is, did we do in a game what we set out to do in practice? Whether we win or lose is secondary to that. So if, they, if you lose, but you did everything right, right, that's okay. But if you win on a fluke or because the other team blew it and you did everything wrong, that, that you, don't get to, you don't get to give yourself credit for that success. And this is what this idea of an inner scorecard versus an outer scorecard, what the, one of the ways you keep ego from creeping in is that you hold yourself to a higher standard than winning or losing, right? So I've got bad news. You're all gonna die. Every single one of us in this room is going to die. There's no exceptions to this rule. I, I'm, I'm not known for my predictions, but I, I feel pretty confident about this one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fact. In, in fact, death is the one prophecy that has never failed. And I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing the fact that there have been all sorts of amazing, important breakthroughs in technology and in medicine. Here's a graph of life expectancy, even over just the last couple hundred years. It's definitely going in the right direction, right? We're living longer than ever before. This is wonderful. I, I, I would never deny that. But the, the heartbreaking fact remains that of everyone who has been born, the mortality rate remains at a steady 100%. And it's not, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's just a, a reality of life. Everyone that's born dies. In, in 1569, uh, a uh, French nobleman named uh, Michel de Montaigne was thrown off a galloping horse. It was a horrendous accident. And as he lay sort of broken and bloodied on the ground, he was more or less given up for dead. His friends carried his limp body back to his house. And he said he could feel life sort of dancing on the tip of his lips. It was coming in and out of consciousness. And he, he actually remembered feeling that if he went to sleep, he would never wake up. He, he was, his grasp on life was, was that tenuous. And somehow, uh, Montaigne does survive. He, he lives. And this experience fun fundamentally changes him. He'd sort of idled through life up until this point. He'd mostly done what other people wanted him to do. He wasn't particularly motivated. And this experience, this brush with death, this, this reminder of his mortality, it, it energizes him. Uh, in, a, in a few years later, he, he publishes his first book of essays. He actually invents the essay. Uh, he becomes one of Europe's most celebrated writers. He becomes a confidant of the king. He serves as a diplomat. He travels all over Europe. And, and uh, it, he even becomes mayor of his hometown. It's a... It's a fascinating sort of uh, rejuvenation of his life. And in a way, it's kind of a timeless story, right? A brush with death changes life. We hear about someone who finds out they have cancer and they quit their job and they dedicate themselves to some cause and, 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 and it's the turning point in their lives. We, we hear about someone who finds out they don't have long to live and it reminds them to, to, to reach out and reconnect with someone. It, it, it rejuvenates their relationships. And sometimes I think we even think about what we would do if we found out that we had a short time to live, if we were in the doctor's office and the doctor came in and he put his hand on our shoulder and he said, you know, you have cancer, you, you, you only have a short time to live. 
Well, the interesting thing is we do have cancer, right? We do only have a short time to live. Uh, the prognosis was terminal the day you were born, right? And, 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 and that's, that's, the, that's the bad news, right? The bad news is you're going to die. The, the good news is now that I've reminded you of this fact, now that we're here talking about this uncomfortable truth, you have a choice, right? How will you live? How will you respond? Who will you be knowing that you're... you're, you're, you're death is a eventual reality, right? And this is, this is what we're going to talk about today. This is what I, I'm thinking about. And, and what's so interesting is that in the modern world, we can lose track of that, that connection to death, right? In the ancient world, death was a fundamental reality. It was a direct part of people's day-to-day experiences. The, the plague could come and decimate an entire town or an entire country. Uh, a war could break out and, and everyone might lose a family member or they might have to fight it themselves and witness death up close. Death wasn't always so antiseptic and distant, right? We were familiarized. People used to die in their own homes. They, they had this experience, this, this day-to-day contact with death. But what's interesting is even though death was way more familiar to people not long ago, their art, they, 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 they built forms of reminding themselves of this fact pretty constantly. There's actually two genres of art. There's one, which is vanitas. And if you, you've probably seen paintings like this, or you might notice this next time you walk through a museum, like half the paintings all have a skull on them for some reason. This is a reminder of mortality. That's what that skull was supposed to represent. This is a famous uh, vanitas po- uh, painting. Uh, it's, it's time in the hourglass. It's life, which is the flower, and then the skull is the death. And you, you see this in countless paintings across history. Um, you see it on tombstones and you see it in, 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 in buildings. What's interesting even is, is there's another genre called the dance macabre, the, the dance of death. And it's, there's almost these comical paintings showing skeletons reminding people that, that, that they're mortal. Um, uh, there's a church in Prague that's actually decorated with the bones of the priests and the monks who serve the church. Um, decorated and, and scattered throughout Europe is something called a cadaver. They're, they're called cadaver tombs. And they show what the person looked like in life. And then they show what they look like now. Um, and, and often they have this Latin ins- inscription on them, which just means like, what I am soon you will be. Uh, this morning I went to St. Stephen's uh, Basilica and you can see a mummified hand that's a thousand years old. This is the same sort of reminder. These, this is why we're supposed to see these things. Montaigne actually liked to play a drinking game with his friends, they would hold up a painting or a picture of a skeleton and they would say, drink and be merry for when you are dead, you will look like this. Um, So inspired by their example, a few years ago, I started carrying a coin in my pocket. It's got the three symbols from that first painting I showed you. And on the front, it says, memento mori, remember death. And on the back, it has a quote from Marcus Aurelius, who said, you could leave life right now. And actually the full quote is, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. You could leave life right now. And it's true, right? Even with all the medical advancements that we have, even with all the technological breakthroughs that hopefully lie in the future, this won't help you if you get hit by a bus, right? This won't help you if you get drafted to fight in a war. This won't help you if you go out for a walk and you're heart just decides to give up, right? These, these things happen. 
So I'm interested in, in how we can use this. I, I think you should take the thing that you're most afraid of, that you're most intimidated by, that's the most uncertain and uncomfortable, and you should look at it. You should stare at it. You should take these obstacles that we face in life and use them to your advantage. That's what this idea of the obstacle is the way means. It's how do we find a way, a way forward through the thing that is most scary and most uncertain. And the, the good news is actually when you stare and think about death, that it can have an energizing effect, right? When you know that your life is short or potentially uh, uncertain, it concentrates your mind. It gives you focus. It gives you priorities. A key part of my morning routine, getting centered, getting to that place of stillness, is my journaling practice. I've done this for a long time, but I really locked into it in the pandemic because it was overwhelming. We, we have so much going on, so many conflicting feelings, scared, nervous, worried, what about this, what about that, all the things you have to do, all the things you're frustrated about, all the things that are unfair. The journal is the perfect place for that. I use a bunch of different journals. I have a journal, it's weird, I know I do my own journal, but there's a question that I, that I it asks each day, I answer the question. I have a gratitude journal I do. There's a really good journal I love called the one line a day journal. So if you're people are like, where do I start? I can't get started, I've tried to start, it's not worked. I love this one because everyone can do one sentence a day, right? And what I love about this journal is I'm now five years into it and there's, a, there's five slots on each page. So I can see where I was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. You can see, it's this awesome way to track progress, to track your moods. You can see how you have patterns. But the point is, it doesn't matter how you journal. It doesn't matter if you do it on your phone. It doesn't matter if you do it on a note card. It doesn't matter if you do it in a book. I don't really care. But the idea is take some time to sit down and reflect and explore your thoughts, right? I do it in a lot of different ways. I do it when I'm traveling. I do it at home. But I always sit down and I do this journaling, right? Even my, my work itself, I do on note cards. I'm always writing stuff down. Work it out on a piece of paper. There's something special about that, which goes to something I wanted to, to point out, which really struck me. Um, I'm sure many of you uh, read Anne Frank's diary when you were in school or you've heard of it. Um, you think about how insanely stressful and scary that would be. It'd be insanely stressful and scary to be a 13-year-old girl, let alone locked in an attic with your parents and another family worried about, uh, you know, worried about what's happening in the world. But she has this great line in her diary that I think about. She says, paper is more patient than people. Instead of vomiting your thoughts on your employees, on your friends, on your coworkers, on the driver in front of you who's taking forever, um, put it on the page. The page is forgiving and patient. It keeps secrets, doesn't care. It doesn't care if you're contradicting yourself. It doesn't care if you're being uh, a baby. It doesn't care if you're whining. Just put it down on the page. The page will help, right? And I love the idea of having distance between you and your thoughts. Part of the reasons we're worked up and anxious and stressed is that we're trapped in, in our heads with all this stuff, right? And you get it out and you see it from a distance and you go, I don't even agree with the, my own thoughts here, right? I don't even like this. I'm not going to choose to carry this around. So putting it down on the page is just really important. These are some of Kennedy's doodles during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was writing notes to himself, thoughts, but you can see his sort of brainstorming, working out of the stressful situation he's in. And this is what journaling can help us do. Um, I was in Milan a few years ago and I got to see some of da Vinci's journals, right? And I think it's also important just as a creativity exercise, right? The journaling, the working, the sketching out, this is what creates the work, right? You can't have the Last Supper without the journals, 
right? So the idea of exploring, keeping a commonplace book, a place you collect ideas, you, 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 you work out your thoughts, this is a really important exercise. I think discipline is something you accumulate, it's, it's something you build on. I'm actually in the middle of doing this, a series of four books. So the cardinal virtues, Christianity and in Stoicism are courage, temperance, which is self-discipline, justice, and wisdom. And I think these four ideas are sort of the framework. Actually, cardinal comes from the Latin word cardos, which means hinge. The like success, life of being a good person hinges on courage, self-discipline, justice, and wisdom. So I, I sort of see them as being related to that. But I, I find that chaos is way more stressful and harder than order and discipline. So, you know, by creating structure, and again, as we move into a more remote sort of work world, uh, or where things are in flux or chaos, um, if, that, if the discipline is not being imposed on you, it's gonna have to come from you. So it's this internal thing that you have to work on. And it's, it, I think it's good, but it's just a challenge. And I, I've seen so many people struggle to adjust to, no one's telling me what to do, this is so wonderful. And then the, the break, they're like, oh shit, I have to tell myself what to do. Really think about like, what do you want your life to look like? What do you want a day in your life to look like? And a lot of times we just have these kind of vague ideas of what success is, and it's usually more responsibility, more money, more recognition. Um, but if you haven't really thought about what you want your day to look like, it's hard to evaluate opportunities as they go. And so I found increasingly I enjoyed writing, I enjoyed thinking, I enjoyed having more autonomy over my life, all those things. And I hope this isn't a bad thing to tell uh, a bunch of people at a company, but I wanted, I just was really thinking about what I wanted my life to look like. And that gave me a lot of clarity about the decisions that I needed to make. Because oftentimes we just, again, we unthinkingly say yes, because somebody offered, because it sounds cool, um, because it is more lucrative. Um, you know, people do this all the time. They, they, they kind of like, they really like their job, but then someone poaches, wants to poach them to a company and the only improvement is that it's more money. And it's like, what are you gonna do with that money, right? Maybe you actually really like the freedom or structure that you have in this, or it's wonderful that you only have a 10 minute commute and now you're gonna have an hour commute. We don't really think about how these things fit in the larger context of our life and the sort of stillness or happiness or productivity we need to be great at what we do. And so I think we evaluate decisions or opportunities on the wrong set of criteria. My new book, Courage is Calling, is now officially a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the book. It, it was literally and figuratively overwhelming. We signed almost 10,000 copies of the book, which just, you know, it, it hit me right here. And I appreciate it so much. If you haven't picked up a copy or you want to pick up a signed copy as a gift, please do. You can get your copy at dailystoic.com slash courage is calling, or you can just go to store.dailystoic.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. 
What do most people think about when they hear the words Black history? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some, as a fighter for black rights. She is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.